As Bradley taught us last weekend, if we've put our faith in Christ, then these stories that we hear, they're not just stories. It's not just history. It's our story. We have been adopted into this family. In Galatians 3, Paul tells us that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so when we read about Rahab, as we did last week, we're reading about great-great-grandma Rahab. You want to add a couple greats to that, but you get the point. And sometimes we can miss that fact. We can talk about asking Jesus into our lives. We'd do better to switch that around and talk about becoming uh, brought into the life of Jesus. We don't add Jesus to our lives as a kind of religious accessory. We've been adopted, adopted into Christ, and our own individual biographies are now part of a much larger, broader story of the life of God's people united in Christ. And so here, when we read towards the end of chapter 4, that they expect that in subsequent generations the children would ask, what do these stones mean? That's us. Many generations down, but we are those children. And we're not looking at stones right now, but we are looking at this long passage and we're saying, what does it all mean to us today? And if you are, or have ever been a child, you know that there's never just one question and then it's over. One question inevitably leads to 10, 15 more, which can be exhausting as a parent. But God doesn't get tired. He doesn't get exhausted with our questions. So in the short time we have, I want to be that child. Well, I want us to ask those questions. To ask questions of God and of his text here, of the scripture, and say, what does this mean for us? We want to understand that how we can read this and walk away like they did, fearing the Lord our God forever. That was the upshot of all that, that God did this so that his people would fear the Lord their God forever. I wonder what you think when you hear that. You may be thinking that you have plenty of fears already and you'd rather not add one more. But we're, we're, we're going to have to understand this afternoon is that the proper fear of the Lord casts out our other fears. To fear the Lord is the surprising mirror image of what we see in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we're told to be strong and courageous. And that's actually the same thing that we're getting at when we hear to fear the Lord. If we fear God, we need fear nothing else. And right from the start, we have to understand that when we talk about the fear of God, that's not the same thing as saying to be afraid of God. The fear of God is expressed in reverence for him, in trust and obedience. So that's where we're going, but that already brings us to the question that's going to underlie all of our questions, which is, how does that work? How do we look at an act, no matter how impressive, that occurred 3,000 years ago plus, half a world away, and it caused us today to fear the Lord and to trust Him? 
So we're going to try to get at that question from a couple different angles by asking those questions, those smaller ones. So we'll, we'll go through a few whys, a, a couple whats, and then we'll finish with a what then. So what do these stones mean? That's the first question. The 12 stones call us to remember that God parted the Jordan River so that the army of Israel, the fighting men of all 12 tribes, could cross the river and begin to take possession of the promised land. So this crossing of the Jordan ended their long time in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, and began to fulfill God's promise that he would bring them to a new land, a good land, sort of a new Garden of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's actually sort of a take two, a second try at the entry to the promised land. Forty years before, their parents had been commanded by God to enter, the, enter Canaan and begin to take possession. But they sent out a spying delegation of 12 spies, and 10 of them came back with a fearsome report. They said, it's true. It's a great land. It's abundant. It's fertile, flowing with milk and honey. All of that's true. But we're not able to go up against that people. They're stronger than we are. They're numerous. They're larger. We don't have a chance. And so they shrunk back in fear, in faithlessness, in cowardice. The land was good, but the risks were way too high. Better to wander in the wilderness than to be slaughtered in the promised land. Caleb, one of the two faithful spies, implored them, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. But they wouldn't listen. But do you hear that contrast? Don't rebel against the Lord, don't fear the people of the land. To fear the people of the land is to rebel against the Lord. To be motivated by that fear was rebellion. They were called to fear and obey God, be strong and courageous, and fear no one else. But they feared the other, the Canaanites, these giants in the land, and so rebelled against the Lord. And so when we come to our passage, that question is still in the background. Whom will the Israelites fear? Will they be strong and courageous and fear God, or will the people be cowardly and fear others? So that's the basics, but when we look at this long account of crossing the Jordan and then the elaborate process of memorializing the crossing, we ask, what's the big deal about crossing a river? Um, beyond the obvious, that they don't have bridges and all that, but but it seems like an awful lot is made of crossing this body of water. Well, it's important to understand initially that when an army crosses a river, then and now, the crossing itself is often a major military operation in a time of tremendous vulnerability. When you cross, you move very slowly through the water, and you're vulnerable to attack from those on the other side at land. At this point, they don't have guns, but they sure do have bow and arrow, and they sure do have spears. And even if that isn't the, the case, they're going to be waiting for you on the other side. So typically, what you want to do is you want to cross at a time that they don't expect, at a place that they don't expect, 
and preferably, if at all possible, where the water is really shallow. Because if you're in the ancient Near East and you're a nomadic wandering people in the wilderness, you probably can't swim. Almost certainly, really. But that's not what happens here. Israel's spies have already been detected, so Jericho knows they're coming. If that wasn't bad enough, they camp out right in front of the, the river for three days. So there's no surprise attack. And they're preparing to cross the river, not at one of the fords farther downstream. They're crossing the river at flood stage. From a human perspective, as the people were preparing to cross, everything about this would have seemed wrong. If you were an unbelieving Israelite soldier, this would have seemed like the setup for a mass drowning or a slaughter. Humanly speaking, there seems to be no way that this will end well for Israel. And that's the point. God is the God who demonstrates his power in our weakness. The God who leads through adversity. It's actually the standard pattern throughout Scripture. So, for example, God chose young David to fight Goliath, Goliath not because he was powerful, but because no one could mistake it, that if David were to win, it would be because of the God behind David. And so when Gideon's army is large and powerful in Judges 6, the Lord says, send most of them back, otherwise the people just won't get it. They'll think it's their superior numbers that gave them victory. God works through the small army so that no one would be confused. It's God who gives the victory. I think this is difficult for us to get because this power and weakness is not intuitive. And so sometimes we willfully misread these passages. So I don't know if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work on David and Goliath. It's a cute enough story. But he takes this as meaning David is small, but that means he's agile, he's nimble, he's innovative, kind of a by Tesla, not GM. That David is the one who has the advantage over Goliath. Um, Maybe true in the corporate world, though I have my doubts, but absolutely a heroic misreading of this passage. That's not the point. It's not about great, nimble, small David. It's about the great God who's behind David. Don't judge by human sight. As the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Here at the edge of the flooded Jordan, God's preparing them for the battles to come, not by shielding them from danger, but by taking them through it and demonstrating his power to save them in the most extreme, in the least promising situations. So also today, God's not promised to keep us from suffering. He's not promised to keep us from danger but he has promised to show himself faithful through it, to assure us of his love and our ultimate deliverance. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for God is with us. God's telling them and us, fear me and fear nothing else. Okay, so that's the first question. So a river crossing is dangerous when you're an army. 
God was showing them his power to deliver them. But why did they cross in the manner that they did? And what's the deal with the Ark of the Covenant? Why did they go first? We have to remember that the Ark of the Covenant was the focal point of God's presence on earth. God doesn't live in a box. He didn't live in a box then. He doesn't live in it now. But it was where he chose to make his presence known. The other thing that's important about the Ark is that it housed a copy of the Ten Commandments. So by having the Ark go first, God was telling the people what he'd already promised them in Deuteronomy 1. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you, where you have seen how the Lord your God carries you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. The Israelites were not to be intrepid explorers. They weren't blazing a new path. They were to follow, always to follow. God would give them the land if they would follow him and keep his commandments. God will fight. You will follow. That's the pattern. Okay, so they need to get across the river. They're learning to trust God. They're learning to follow him. But what did God mean by parting the river? I mean, he's God. He can do anything. There are a whole bunch of ways to get them across. You could sort of fly them over. You could beam them from one side to the other. Why did it take the form that it did? Why did God deliver them this way? Well, it's important to understand that a miracle is not a magic trick. A miracle is a sign. And so when we see it, we should say, what does that sign signify? It means something. The Lord tells Joshua specifically what it does mean, actually. He says, when I do this, it will mean that the living God is among you and that he will not, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites and all the other nations that... Ryan read, read so well. We're not going to understand the significance of this miracle, though, unless we understand something about the symbolism of the waters in the Bible. In the Old Testament and the New, stormy, overflowing waters often symbolize death and the enemies of God and God's people. So just a couple examples. In Isaiah 17, we read, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. The roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them. Okay, so nations, roaring waters, it's a connection there, and we've got a lot others like it. But also death. In 2 Samuel 22, David says, The waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. And so to cut off the waters of the Jordan is a sign that points to a promise. God's saying, as the waters are dangerous and powerful, so are your enemies in this land. You would have no chance against them in your own might. But if you'll trust in me, if you will follow me, then I'll push back your enemies I will cut them off like I've cut off these overflowing, turbulent waters. Be strong and courageous, because the Lord will protect you. Fear God and fear nothing else. Which brings us to our 
final big question, the question that underlies all these other questions. Does God still part rivers? We hear that he's a delivering God, but will he deliver me? Will he deliver you? It's great to read about this miracle that occurred so long ago, but it was so long ago. First, I think we have to understand a couple things. These miracles, these great events, point us forward, forward to Jesus, as they were to follow the Ark of the Covenant, which was the visible manifestation of the presence of the Lord on earth, we follow the true presence of God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. As they followed the Ark by obeying the word of God stored within it, we follow Jesus, who is the word, the word of God. As God split the Jordan River in order to exalt Joshua, to initiate Joshua's leadership so that the people would trust and follow him, God actually did the same for Jesus. Remember the first chapter of Mark. Jesus goes down into the Jordan, the Jordan River, to be baptized. But this time, the Jordan River doesn't split. Instead, the heavens themselves break open, and Jesus is exalted by God the Father. We read, Immediately Jesus saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The exaltation of Joshua called for Israel to trust him. As we remember that miracle, we're reminded to trust and follow Jesus, who was exalted as the greater Joshua at the Jordan River and in his resurrection. As Bradley pointed out last week, Joshua and Jesus, it's the same name. Joshua is the Hebrew pronunciation, Jesus is the Greek. They both mean Yahweh will save. But there's more in common besides that common name. Jesus is in many ways a new, greater Joshua. As Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land and into conquest, so Jesus does also. When we're baptized, we are baptized into the mission of Jesus, and we begin a kind of conquest of the whole world, but not with weapons of steel, but in obedience to Jesus' great commission, that we go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. As the Israelite mission to take possession of the land was just beginning when they crossed the Jordan, so our baptism also marks just the beginning of the mission that we're called to. This miracle, like all the miracles, are good news because they remind us of who God is yesterday, today, and forever. It's not that we ought to expect similar miracles to occur on a regular basis. They didn't in the Bible either. We misunderstand that sometimes. Of course, when they occurred, they're recorded, but there are vast stretches of times where there are no miraculous events in the Bible. Ordinarily, then and now, God works through regular means of caring for us, through his church, through the comfort of the Spirit, through the instruction of the Word, through communion and baptism, 
But still, we should see that this great miracle of God points us to a repeating pattern in Scripture that so clearly demonstrates to us who God is. God's a God who delivers his people through the waters, through the waters of their enemies, the waters of death. And he makes a way for them to live and thrive through and beyond those waters. He brings them to firm ground. At creation, all the way back in creation, God took the formless waters of the deep and separated them to make dry land for us to live on. At the flood, God delivers Noah and his family through the waters with an ark and then back onto dry ground. In Exodus 1, when the wicked Pharaoh wants to exterminate God's people by throwing male babies into the waters, God rescues Moses by providing a new ark, a basket in which Moses floats to safety, to dry ground. There's lots more we could talk about in the Old Testament. We could talk about the strange case of Jonah and the large fish. We could talk about Elijah and Elisha. But then there's an important change when we come to the New Testament. Jesus doesn't push back the waters, but he walks upon them. He calls fishers of men, trains specialists in drawing out the treasures of the waters. And where Jesus confronts the stormy waters on the boat, he speaks his word and they become placid. They become peaceful. And remember, the stormy waters symbolize the Gentile nations in the Old Testament. And so what we see with Jesus is a change from a conquest that requires the removal of the Gentile nations to a ministry within the nations a ministry of conversion that calls them to peace with God. Jesus makes the stormy seas calm by his word. He turns his enemies into friends by the proclamation of the gospel. There's lots and lots more about water. But these demonstrate that God yesterday, today, and forever, he's a God who delivers his people through the waters through the waters which symbolize death and sin, the waters of chaos, the waters that symbolize all the forces and people opposed to God and the people of God. He's not just mighty. He's mighty to save his beloved people. Miracles are not just a display of raw force. They're power in love and care for his people to save you and me. And yet all of these water crossings, all of them, deal in symbols and hints and foreshadowing. They all point to a far greater reality that was to come. As God pushed back the waters that symbolized death and sin and enmity between God and man, Jesus, the Son of God, God with us, dealt with death and sin and enmity itself. Remember, in Mark 10, Jesus refers to his crucifixion as a baptism. The baptism with which I will be baptized, you can't be baptized. It was something like that. 
And that sounds like a strange phrase, right? A crucifixion doesn't look anything like a baptism. But it is. It was a deliverance through the waters of death. He was crucified and submerged by the waters of death. He went down to the grave. But death could not hold him. God vindicated him and brought him up from the grave at his resurrection. So our passage today demonstrates that our God is a delivering God. But it also looks forward to a greater deliverance that we still hope for, for our own bodies. In our baptism and by faith in Christ, the raging waters have been stilled by Jesus. If you've seen a baptism, those aren't stormy waters anymore. As Paul tells us in Romans 6, we have been baptized into his death so that we will also be raised with him. So that's what these stones mean. They mean more than that, but they mean at least that. Our God is a God who delivers you in Christ Jesus from your sin, from death, from your enemies. He does this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Do you know this mighty God? Do you fear him? What do you fear? Whom do you fear? Do you fear the opinions of others? Do you fear financial loss? Do you fear your boss? Do you fear death itself? Our lives are bound to be directed by our fears. What kind of fear will direct your life? In Joshua 1, we're told to be strong and courageous. In Joshua 4, we're told to see this miracle and fear the Lord our God forever. There's no conflict there. Two different ways of saying the same thing. If you fear God, you have nothing to fear. To fear God is to honor, trust, and obey him. To look only to him to save you from your sins and from all your other fears. We behold all of God's saving acts and we are called to fear God and be fearless. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fear God and be fearless. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.